Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. All right, well, so we're about done with Ezekiel. Tonight, we're going to look at chapter 38 and 39 again. Just a real quick, I say real quick, a recap of what we looked at the first time. uh, And then really trying to just bring home the message of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then I'm kind of debating because 38 through the end of the book is kind of one section. And so next week... Uh, I'm thinking I'm going to um, maybe try to cover 40 to the end of the book, and then we can go right into our next uh, sermon series, which is going to be on the order of salvation. So we'll cover uh, everything from salvation in eternity past through each of the steps, um, and there's a lot of them, uh, all the way through uh, glorification. But tonight I want us to look at... Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, uh, I already read both of these chapters last time we were together. And so I think I'm just going to say that Ezekiel 39 is in some ways a recapitulation of Ezekiel 38 from another angle. So I'm just going to read verse chapter 39. All right? And you, son of man... Prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike you a bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and all the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort, to the beasts of the field to be devoured, you shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. In my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord. Uh, that is the day of which I have spoken." Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forests, for they will make their fires uh, of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day I will give Gog... To Gog, a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers uh, east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried, and it will be called the valley of Hamon Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land, and all the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will stretch out, they will make their search. Uh, and when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hemongog. 
Ahamanah is also the name of the city. Thus shall they cleanse the land. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them, fat beasts of Bashan, and you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall, shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand uh, that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward, and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name, and they shall forget their shame and all the treachery that they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, we're looking at Ezekiel, and there were a bunch of chapters at the beginning of Ezekiel where the Lord was prophesying against the people of Israel because of their sin. They had committed idolatry on every high hill and with every God they could get their hands on. And because Israel was a people who were in covenant with God, God not only said, you're idolaters, he also said, you're adulterers. And so because of their sin, which was long-lasting and unremitting, the Lord said, I'm going to send you into exile, which he did. And then when Ezekiel and the people were in exile, the Lord said, and I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. And the people just couldn't believe that. It took them a long time to be convinced that the Lord was going to do it. As a matter of fact, they didn't believe the Lord was going to do it until he actually did it. And so uh, at a certain point in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 24, uh, you finally hear that the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. God has executed judgment on the people for their sin. And then from chapter 25 through chapter 32, you begin to have um, prophecies of hope. And those prophecies of hope begin in chapter 25 through 32 by prophesying against the nations around Israel. Because they had celebrated that Israel was um, destroyed. And so the Lord uh, is going to begin the good word for Israel by speaking against Israel's enemies, against her neighbors. And then in chapter 33, you really begin to see God making these great promises to Israel that he was going to um, fulfill. And so in chapter 33, you see there 
the people of Israel are going to be given a new responsibility, a covenant of peace. In chapter 34, you, you have that chapter about uh, the shepherds of Israel and how God is going to raise up another shepherd, a David. In chapter 35 and 36, you have the wonderful promises of the, the, the fact that God was going to take their heart of stone and was going to give them a heart of flesh so that they would obey his law. Chapter 37 is that famous chapter uh, where the people of Israel are envisioned uh, as being a bunch of dry bones in a valley. And as Ezekiel makes his prophecy, the bones come together, ligaments form, skin and organs uh, come in and out of the bones. And then finally you have a, a resurrected people there. God was saying, in essence, he was going to bring Israel from the dead. And then in chapters 38 and 39, you see this promise of victory where there's going to be this massive army that's going to come against the people of Israel and God is going to give his people victory uh, over this army. Now, what we're going to do for the next little while is I'm going to give you my interpretation of this. This is that famous passage uh, of Gog and Magog, right? Uh, and as we said, when we looked at this, and I'm just going to give you the drink from a fire hose version because I preached a longer version of this a few weeks back. And if you're really interested in my interpretation, then you're going to want to go listen to that. But let me just say my interpretation is not new. It's just not popular. But honestly, by now, you guys are used to that, right? Uh, not new, not my own, just not very popular. Uh, because when you begin to talk about Gog and Magog, overwhelmingly in our day, people think that you're talking about a Russian-led coalition that's going to happen sometime in the future against the nation of Israel. Uh, these, Gary DeMar says, these and other chapters are used by modern-day prophecy writers to defend the belief that Russia and her Islamic neighbors will attack Israel. It's argued that this attack will put uh, into motion a series of geopolitical events that will set the stage for a coming world leader and an eventual worldwide great tribulation. And they can only be stopped by the direct intervention of God, but only after the battle of Armageddon when billions of people have died. That is, if you watch any sort of prophecy shows, uh, this is what you're going to come across. Uh, one example of this is uh, Timothy Daly, who writes in a book called The Gathering Storm, that the Gog-Magog prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, is of a Russian-led invasion of the Middle East is so commonly held as to be almost taken for granted. <clears throat> so ingrained is this theory that books on biblical prophecy have assumed routinely over the years that it was beyond doubt. Without discussing the evidence, for example, John F. Wolverd simply concludes that the description in Ezekiel 38 and 39 could only refer to what we know as Russia. Now again, that should immediately send little flags up in your brain. Because even though God's word was written for us, God's word was not written to us. It was written to people at a certain time, at a certain place, and if they couldn't get Russia out of it, Russia's probably not in it. Right? Russia didn't exist then. So why do people say Russia? Well, it's because of a translation issue in Ezekiel 38. Now, again, we're going to pick it up here, but I'm just going to introduce this to you. 
why people say that, why I don't think it's true, what I think it is, and then we'll apply it so that no matter what you believe about this, we can take something from it. So in Ezekiel 38.1, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So this is our phrase, the prince of Rosh. Now, Rosh is a Hebrew word that means head. So the beginning of the new year is called Rosh Hashanah, head of the year. Uh, But some people take Rosh not as the noun that means head, but as the name of a place. The problem is Rosh never occurs as a place name anywhere else in the Bible. Hebrew scholars have realized that, and so other translators translate it this way. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So in other words, the head prince. Do you see the difference? So the head prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now these are both places listed in the Bible, uh, and, and this, I think, is a much better translation. But because people thought Rosh was a place... They said, well, Rosh sounds like Russia. It must be Russia. That's not great thinking. I can come up with Hebrew words that sound like all kinds of country names, and it probably doesn't mean the country. But as, as has been said, that's almost assumed. And that's one of those things that's a terrible assumption. So why Russia? I think because of a mistranslation. There's only one problem with it being Russia. It says this, that the accomplishment of this prophecy was to demonstrate to the nations at that time that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against God. These witnessing nations are described by Ezekiel as Israel's adversaries. Applying the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39 to modern-day nations is contrary to the historical context. No nation today had any part in Israel's exile 2,600 years ago. So this was a prophecy that was prophesied so that something would be shown to those nations that put Israel in exile that God is still on his throne. So what are we to do? Well, this is where I get wonky. I, I, I think it's a, a, I'm going to show you why I think it's a good interpretation. It's just not one that you haven't heard before. But just because we haven't heard it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a good history and isn't backed by good scholars. So what are we to do then? Because it seems like the kind of battle that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 hasn't happened yet. But we can't see that it's Russia. So what are we to do? Well, here's what I say. How about you look at the Bible instead of the newspaper? And then I say, you know, maybe like the book of Esther. And here's what I mean. I think that looking at the book of Esther, we can find an event that shows a multinational defense of Israel by her God that showed the nations at that time that Israel's God was the Lord. All right? So, the many nations, Ezekiel describes, the, y'all with me? Fire hose, let's go. Ezekiel describes the attack of Gog, prince of Magog, and his confederates. Ezekiel states that people from all over the world attack God's people who are pictured as dwelling at peace in the land. 
God's people, though, will completely defeat them, however, and the spoils will be immense. The result is that the nations will see the victory, and the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day onward. Chronologically, this fits nicely with the book of Esther. The events of Esther took place during the reign of Darius, after the initial rebuilding of the temple under Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, shortly before the rebuilding of the walls by Nehemiah. Thus, the interpreting hypothesis I am suggesting, unless somebody shoots it down, is this. Ezekiel 34 through 37 describes the return of the exiles under Zerubbabel uh, and implies the initial rebuilding of the physical temple. Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe the attack of Gog and his confederates against the Jews. So let me try and make my case very quickly. I've done this before in more length. In Ezekiel 38, here's the nations that are going to attack the people of Israel. Persia, Cush, Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth, Torgamah, uh, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. And then listen to this. Now the days of... Uh, this is one that always trips me, and I took several years of Hebrew. Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over how many provinces? In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors in the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. He reigned over land from India to Ethiopia. That includes the whole biblical world. In other words, well, let's say this. I think we can see that if there has been a point in history where that many nations could have come against Israel at once, that maybe this is something that could be describing it. Now, it says in Ezekiel 38, the Jews were attacked by people from all the provinces of Persia. That's in both passages. And the nations listed by Ezekiel were part of the Persian Empire of his day. The parallels are unmistakable. Even Ezekiel's statement that the fulfillment of the prophecy takes place in a time when there are unwalled villages. Now, what's interesting is those people who say that it's Russia and it's in the future say it's got to be sometime in the future because most of Israel's cities are, uh, had been surrounded by walls. Now, a whole lot of them aren't surrounded by walls, and so it has to be sometime in the future. Is that so? I'm putting your head deep into a, an argument and a biblical conversation you probably weren't even thinking of when you were eating your lettuce and eating your uh, chicken alfredo. Thus says the Lord God, on, the, on that day thoughts will come into your mind, this is Ezekiel 38, and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls, having no bars or gates. Esther 9.19 says this, <clears throat> Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in rural towns Hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send good gifts of food to one another. Now, the reason I have this in red and the reason I have this in red is because it's the same word in Hebrew. So in that time, the people of Israel, when they were attacked by many nations, lived in unwalled villages. Does anybody know the name of the bad guy in Esther? Haman, right? Let's talk about Haman the Agagite. Now, I just want to point something out that we'll look at in more depth in a second. 
What are those three letters there? G-A-G. Just want you to focus on that for a second. All right? The chief antagonist of the Jews in Esther is Haman, the son of uh, Hamedathah, the Agagite. And Agagite is a descendant of Amalek, one of the persistent enemies of the people of God. In Numbers 24-20, we read, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. The phrase first of the nations takes us back to the early chapters of Genesis, where we find Gomer, Magog, Tubal, and Meshech. Where have you heard those? Ezekiel 38. Uh, and the main antagonist uh, nations that figure prominently in Ezekiel 38 and 39. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in Numbers 24-7, the Septuagint translates Agag as Gog. One late manuscript to Esther 3-1 and 9-24 refers to Haman as the Gogite. Agag and Gog are very similar in their Hebrew spelling and meaning. Agagite means I will overtop, while Gog means mountain. There's another link between Haman the Agagite and Esther and Gog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. According to Ezekiel 39, 11 and 15, the place where the army of Gog is buried will be known as the Valley of Hamon Gog. And according to verse 16, the nearby city will become known as Hamona. The word Hamon in Ezekiel is spelled in Hebrew almost exactly like the name Haman. In Hebrew, both words have the same triliteral root, only the vowels are different. So here's what I'm trying to show you. Most of us have grown up drinking the water that there's going to be this great battle, this awful battle where billions are going to die. It's going to coincide with that time of the tribulation. And you know me, I think the time of the tribulation isn't coming. I think the time of the tribulation is what? Happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so I don't think we're going to face that great tribulation. We may face many tribulations, but I don't think that great tribulation is in our future, nor do I think that this battle uh, of Gog and Magog is in our future either. I think it's also describing something that happened. Listen to Haman the Agagite's role. The word of the Lord came to me, and this is Ezekiel, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Listen to what Esther says. After these things, the king promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of someone, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. That makes him the chief prince, doesn't it? And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So Haman fits in terms of the name, Haman fits in terms of the role, and even Haman's plan fits. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So in other words, all these great nations were going to come against who? The people of Israel in a day. All right? Good TV. Well, how about this? This coincides with Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind that I'm going to plunder you. I'm going to take your spoil. I'm going to take your livestock and your goods. I'm going to plunder, carry away your silver and gold. I'm going to seize your great spoil. Those are key words. Listen to what it says that Haman was seeking to do in Esther 3.12. He's going to plunder their goods. And so the plan of Gog and uh, like in the land of Magog and all this stuff, seems to fit, biblically speaking, 
with Haman and what happened in the book of Esther. Are there any objections to this? Well, yeah. Of all my unusual interpretations, this is the one I hold most lightly. What are the objections? Well, the cosmic language. In various places, it just uses this cosmic energy. Great earthquakes in the land of Israel, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and all the creeping things on the ground, all the people who are on the face of the earth. The mountains shall bow down, the cliffs shall fall, every wall shall tumble to the ground. The birds of the heavens will feed. Great language, number language, seven months. Now when the word seven appears in the Bible, it's probably symbolic, isn't it? And that's what we see here. All this great language. And here's the way I answered that objection. Because if you talk about cliffs falling and mountains bowing down and birds and heavens and creeping things, you're going to think nothing literally like that has happened in the history of the world that must be future. And here's where I want you to hear me because this one rule alone will help you read your Bible more effectively than you're used to. The Bible, when it's talking about God working, brings in huge cosmic language to describe everyday events. If you want a good example of this, sometime read Exodus 14 and then read Exodus 15. In Exodus 14, it's the story of God splitting the water, the people of Israel going through, the water coming back over, and drowning the uh, army of the Egyptians. And it's a great wind blew. Moses held his hands. They went through, the waters came back over, they drowned. That's a narrative description. And then after that, in Exodus 15, you have the poetic description of the Lord hurling riders into the sea. Great cosmic language comes in. Because when the people of Israel are describing events from God's perspective in which God is involved, the cosmic language comes. A great example of this is Psalm 18. So David in Psalm 18 is describing, probably, it says it. The, uh, the description at the beginning of Psalm 18 says that this is what happened on the day when the Lord delivered David from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So David wrote this psalm in response to that event. If you want the narrative description, go to 1 Samuel. And it will describe it in narrative terms. In Psalm 18, David describes it with the Lord involved. And because the Lord is involved, and because it's poetic, the language gets big. And so he says, The land shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaking because he was angry. God sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstone and coals of fire. The channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. The author of 2 Samuel didn't literally record that because that's a poetic description. The the biggest obstacle we have to overcome in reading our Bibles is to not take what's poetic as poetry and to make everything literal. It hasn't literally happened, so it's got to happen in the future. And if someone like me comes along and says, I think it's poetic, people go, I don't think you take the Bible seriously. And here's my response. If David intended it poetically and you don't take it poetically, 
you're not taking the Bible seriously. Can I get an amen? And I don't think I often say things like that, but listen to me. I stake my life on the truth of the Bible. I take it very seriously. And I know you know that. That's why you're here. And I know you do as well. The decreation language of Ezekiel 38, 18-21 is typical of prophetic descriptions of local judgments. They're all over the Bible. You can read in Isaiah 19 of the destruction of Babylon. Decreation language. Big stuff. But that's not a little description of what happened in Babylon. It's a poetic description. Not literal doesn't mean untrue, does it? No, it doesn't. Not literal means they're seeing it with theological import. And in our day, we have a real trouble with that. We read everything as if it was the, the book that came with our microwave. And you, you can't do that with the Bible. All right? The latter days language. It says this stuff's going to happen in the latter days. I'll spare you the long quote, except to say this. Brown Driver Briggs, which is the standard Hebrew and English lexicon, defines the word latter days as the final period of history so far as the speaker's perspective reaches. And that word is often used to describe events that were future in that point, but are now fulfilled. So latter days means from my perspective now. There are plenty of things. Joel says that in the last days, people, the, the Lord will pour, pour out his Holy Spirit and uh, young men will have visions, old men will dream dreams, and then they'll know it's the day of the Lord. And in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit is pour, poured out, it says this is to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So, the last days language doesn't scare me. Last days from that perspective. There's not a word in Hebrew for the future. So whenever they talk about the future, they talk about it in terms of latter days. Whether that's 40 years away or 400 years away or 4,000 years away. Cool. So what does all this mean? Well, from this point on, it doesn't matter if you agree with me. It, actually, it doesn't matter if you agree with me then. We can disagree on this kind of stuff and still love each other and be covenant community partners. Amen? But what does all of this mean? It means this. And this is how we should, whether you interpret this as future or whether you interpret it as past, it's intended to do the same thing in our soul. And what it's intended to do in our soul is to demonstrate that God will show His glory to all people through His faithfulness to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God is basically saying through this prophecy, whether it happened in the past or whether it's going to happen in the future, that I'm going to protect my people and if you're faithful to me, all the world is going to know through you that I am indeed the God of all. And He's going to show His glory in two ways in, the remain, in, in this, this section and in, in chapters 40 through the end. Remember, because the people of Israel were in exile, God's name was dishonored. This God, Yahweh, can't protect his own people. The, the, the gods of Babylon overran them. The gods of Assyria did it to the northern kingdom, you know, a couple hundred years before. Yahweh can't protect his people. They're out of the land. He can't even keep them uh, 
faithful to him. They were going after our gods. What kind of puny God is Yahweh? And so his name is dishonored because his people are spread among the nations. And his name is dishonored, or at least his plan is not fulfilled. Because you remember at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, remember how the glory of the Lord raises up out of the temple and then goes to the edge of the city and then goes up and sits on the mountain? And it says that now the temple is Ichabod, Ichavod, without glory, no glory. The glory of the Lord has departed. It was always God's plan to be in his temple with his people. And because of Israel's sin, that, has been, uh, that plan has been done away with. And what the Lord is promising is this, that through people who are faithful to me, I will always show my honor among the nations, and I will eventually be with them in fullness. I'm going to undo everything bad for the sake of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. The history of history is littered with gogs. Those who have thought they would eradicate the people of God, they have not triumphed so far, and this vision affirms that they never will. Whether Gog was Agag or whether Gog is Russia and a Middle Eastern alliance, It doesn't matter who they are. They're going to fail. They're going to fail to bring down God's people. They're going to fail to destroy the earth from the church. They're going to fail to do away with the honor and the glory of God. They're going to fail. They're going to fail. And it doesn't matter how many gogs there are, God's going to show his glory. It's happened in church history with the Romans. They thought they would end this Christian movement very quick by throwing Paul in jail. And in Philippians, he writes a letter from jail, and Paul says this, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, they failed. Or, Paul writing again from letters, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The Word of God is not bound. January 9th, 1985, a pastor in Bulgaria was arrested and put in prison. His crime was that he preached in his church even though the state had appointed another man, the pastor, whom the congregation did not elect. His trial was a mockery of justice and he was sentenced to eight months imprisonment. During his time in prison, he made Christ known every way he could. When he got out, he wrote both... Prisoners and jailers have asked many questions, and it turned out that we had more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. The communists in China. The growth of the church in China since the takeover in 1949. um, Mao Zedong unwittingly became the greatest evangelist in history. He sought to destroy all religious superstition, but in the process cleared spiritual roadblocks for the advancement of Christianity. Uh, Deng Xiaoping reversed the horrors inflicted by Mao and in freeing up the economy gave more freedom to the Christians. Today, the church of the Lord Jesus is larger than the Communist Party of China. And on and on. I love this. In the early 1990s, around 1.5 million Christians lived in Iraq. Today, that number hovers around 200,000. Persecution doesn't always make the church spread, but persecution will never kill the church. 
The Christian population in the Middle East has declined significantly, but Christianity in Iraq and Syria is still alive. For these Christians, the words of Genesis 50:20 ring true. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Of course, Iraq and Syria over the last few years have been under the control of ISIS, where if you were named a Christian, you were killed. Over 100,000 Christians were displaced from cities in Iraq and Syria. Yet reports of Iraqi and Syrian believers continue to reveal the omnipotence of God, using the ways of evil for good. Uh, believers in churches have grown stronger. Archbishop Johanna Petros Mush says of Iraqi Christians, three years of displacement have shaken the faith of these Christians, he says, but I see they've come closer to God. Their faith has become stronger. You can see the churches now are full. In many ways, the Christian church throughout the world is part of this survival story. So uh, ISIS was taken down after their reign of terror, trying to destroy Christians and everything that was good. This was last Easter in a town that was controlled by ISIS. My name is Andalaus, and I'm 25 years old, Christian, and I live in Karakosh. Three years ago, ISIS came and we all fled. My faith did change, you know. You know, the first days that we were displaced, I feel like there was no God or there was no Jesus because the thing that happened to us. But after that, I realized that Jesus do exist and we have to believe in Him. And because of Him, we are here today. And today is Palm Sunday, the start of the week of Easter, and we are very excited about it. It's really important to me because it's the day that Jesus went to Jerusalem and, um, you know, the, before, we, before we fled, we were having Palm Easter every year. It is a big thing, actually. It's, you know, if you went anywhere in the, in the world, you're not, you're not going to find something like this. For the Christian around the world, I'm very happy to share with you this video. You know, because of it, I feel like we are connected with each other. So please do not lose hope. Two years and a half we were displaced and we never had hope that we come we were coming back again. But today we are here today because of Jesus, because we had hope in Him. We know that Gog always loses, right? Because the kingdom of Christ uh, will withstand the gates of hell. Again, I'm not presumptuous thinking that our future is bright. I don't know our future. I just know the church's future is bright. And so what we can take from this is that one day, finally and fully, the Lord is going to restore His people and vindicate them before all the nations to show that these were the ones who were faithful to me and therefore these are the ones uh, who will be honored. And then what we'll see in the next few chapters is that the Lord, with His vision of the new temple, is going to come back in and His glory is going to be with His people again. So all that to say, we really, really should have hope in God's victory even when it seems like we're losing. No matter how you think about uh, interpreting Gog and Magog, there's something for all of us to, to have and to hold there. Well, let's pray.